0: Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to J.P. Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. There was no disguising the biggest story of the week, which unusually and perhaps refreshingly for a change had nothing to do with the economy, interest rates or other macro factors. It was instead the announcement of the AI chipmaker NVIDIA's latest quarterly earnings, which easily beat market expectations, came littered with superlatives and a positive outlook, and drove Wall Street to a new all-time high. Shares in NVIDIA rose 16% on the week, breaking all sorts of records, including that of the largest single daily gain in market value of any company at any time in history. New all-time highs for the US equity market, both the the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, in turn helped to drive other global markets higher as well, with the Stocks Europe 600 Index, the Nikkei 225 in Japan, and the FTSE All World Index also recording new all-time highs. The European Index also shows a similar level of concentration to the S&P 500, just 11 companies accounting for 50% of the gains of the past 12 months. NVIDIA has leapfrogged Amazon and Google's parent Alphabet to become the third most valuable US-listed company after Microsoft and Apple. Such abnormal periods, when market cap-based indices are led higher by a very small group of large companies, rarely end well, but for the moment it's fueling powerful momentum and blanking out more traditional concerns, including economic and geopolitical risks. Nevertheless, there was some support too in the bond markets where yields declined modestly on both sides of the Atlantic. In the US, the fall was confined to longer-dated issues, whereas over here, all but the most short-dated gilts moved a little higher as yields declined by a few basis points. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, announced that auctions of newly issued gilts would be open to private investors for the first time in years, at least to those who use either the Hargreaves Lansdowne or Interactive Investor platforms with the first such opportunity being the issue of a seven-year gilt with a 4% coupon. Uh, Applications for this have to be in by Tuesday. Mr. Hunt did not actually echo Lord Kitchener in saying your country needs you, but he might as well have done given the looming massive funding requirements of the state. Although a cynic might wonder whether this really is such good news given past historical experience. Investors who hold this latest gilt to maturity will lose money in real terms unless inflation is held below 4% over the intervening seven years. And that, I would say, is possible, but far from certain. Investors who bought other patriotic bond issues, such as war loan or gilts issued after the Second World War, have not always fared that well. But who am I to quibble about that? The Investment Trust Index, meanwhile, which measures the performance of some 190 trusts in the FTSE All Share Index, edged up 0.8%, which was ahead of the FTSE All Share Index, which was flat on the week while the average discount narrowed slightly to around 16%. The number of gainers more or less matched the number of losers. Commercial property and renewable energy trusts were among the better showers of the week, while the wooden spoon for share price performance this week, unkindly perhaps in a week which saw the first US space landing on the moon for 50 years, went to the seemingly permanently volatile Seraphim Space Investment Trust. All the week's trust news and the biggest movers are summarised as normal in our weekly email to subscribers, and I will only pick out a few highlights. We learnt that a rival bidder for the hand of Aberdeen Property Income, ticker API, has emerged in the form of Urban Logistics, ticker SHED, S-H-E-D, which has proposed an all-share merger that it believes offers a better outcome for the shareholders in Aberdeen Property Income than the recently agreed approach by Custodian Property Income, ticker C-R-E-I. There were results from eight investment companies, with all but one, that being Aberdeen China, ticker ACIC, which is on the way to being absorbed by the much larger Fidelity China Special Situations Trust, reporting a positive return. But only two, the Gulf Investment Fund and Herald, the UK technology focused trust, outperforming their benchmarks over their latest reporting period. We also learned that JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, JGGI, has raised £34.5 million in its recent placing and retail offer. That was a little short of the £40 million maximum it had specified, though the retail offer, the offer to private investors, was materially oversubscribed. We also heard that Capital Gearing Trust, ticker CGT, has finally completed the reorganisation of its distributable reserves. It's got court approval to use some of its reserves to continue its share buyback programme. And its discount control policy, therefore, is now back in full operation. We also heard about an increased buyback programme from VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, ticker GSEO, and news of tender offers from Fidelity Emerging, ticker FEML, and Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE. Results of those two tender offers will be announced in March. Our latest trust profile features MIGO Opportunities, ticker MIGO, the popular fund of investment trust that's managed by Nick Greenwood and Charlotte Cuthbertson. The trust recently moved from Premier Mighton to a new home at Asset Value Investors. In this week's podcast, I catch up first with Ben Conway, the head of fund management at the boutique advisory firm Hawksmoor Investment Management, who's figured prominently in the campaign to raise awareness of the cost disclosure issue that many believe has hindered trust performance in the last couple of years. We cover where that campaign has now got to and how we sees the recent underperformance of the trust sector unfolding from here. Next, I talk to Sachin Sagar, an analyst at the broker Stiefel, about some of the recent developments in the alternative sector of the investment trust universe. It's not got off to such a good start this year. A reminder that next week will be our 200th edition of the podcast, and I will be speaking to Simon Elliott, my original co-host, about what we both learned over the past four years. I would like to mention finally that I will again be spending the day at the annual Master Investor Show in London next Saturday, where I will be speaking on a panel grandly entitled Tips from the Experts and signing copies of the Investment Trust's handbook. Do feel free to come up and introduce yourself if you are a listener to the podcast. And if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, I have included a code in the weekly email that will get you a free ticket to the day-long event, a saving of £25 on the normal entry price. Hope to see some of you there. Earlier this week, I had the chance to catch up with Ben Conway, who is head of fund management at Hawksmoor Investment Management and who has been one of the prominent figures in the campaign to bring the issue of cost disclosure in investment companies to the attention of government and regulators. It's a moment to ask Ben where we are in this process, where he thinks we've got to in this campaign, which has drawn in a wide number of other parts of the industry, including fund managers, analysts, private investors, and so on. Before we do that, though, I have to issue what I can only describe as a horrible acronym alert. We're going to make reference to a number of acronyms, which unfortunately blight this whole particular issue. Rather than get bogged down with all the mentions of UKITs, MIFID, and so on, I think the thing to bear in mind is that we are essentially talking about a potential regime change from one in which investment companies are classified as packaged retail investment products, or PRIPs, as it was known, to a new regime, which is going to classify them rather inelegantly as consumer composite instruments, or CCIs. I don't know who dreamt that one up, but it's the kind of bureaucratic horror story that invariably seems to affect these kind of issues. Anyway, enough of all that. So, Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Where are we in the process now, do you think?
1: Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks very much for having me back on as well. I was here last autumn, back in September, since when, as many of your listeners will know, HM Treasury issued a consultation on the regime that's going to replace PRIPS, the revocation of which was announced among the Edinburgh reforms by the Chancellor last year. And we took that opportunity to respond to that consultation. When I say we, I say guided and led by the London Stock Exchange Group. We uh, thought it would be a good idea to issue a joint response to that consultation. And specifically, the consultation was asking for technical thoughts on the regime that's going to replace PRIPS, which is the CCI, Consumer Composite Investment Regime. So we took this opportunity to respond to that consultation to say that investment companies do not meet the definition of what a CCI is. And therefore, we thought that investment companies should be on the excluded list. And the the key point of which is, is that, A, it's true that they do not meet the technical definition of what a CCI is. Specifically, they don't have readily redeemable or subscriptionable units as, for example, an open-ended fund does. It's a, it's a listed share. But the effect of this would be to solve the ills that currently exist as a result of the current cost disclosure regime, specifically that investment companies, because they're designated as PRIPs, that they are required to produce a kid, which has this cost on it, which is required to be disclosed incorrectly as a product cost. So you get on the exclusion list for the new CCI regime. And you won't have that regulatory obligation to produce this number, which is in turn interpreted as a product cost.
0: Essentially, you're applying sort of Occam's razor, which is the easiest way to deal with this problem is to just to simplify it by excluding you altogether from the regime. And then you'll be governed then by the regimes that apply to all listed companies in a more conventional ways. Is that right?
1: Yeah, correct. Um, But that's not a tactic. Sadly, we can't deal with revisions to retained EU law in the order that we'd like. So we're being dictated to by the the government's own legislative agenda. But in this particular instance, it's not just a tactic. It is, we believe, a fact that investment companies don't meet this definition. So it's not just a tactic to get rid of the ill of the cost disclosure. But it just so happens that in arguing for to be on the excluded product list, it does solve that particular issue. Now, a couple of things I want to add is, is that First of all, we were absolutely blown away by the response that we got from industry, not just industry, not just our peers, but from across the entire, awful phrase, stakeholder community. Anybody connected with investment companies who cares so I'm talking about not just you know parliamentarians and investment advisors and um, investors and asset managers, but we're talking about academics, individuals, ACDS, really the full gamut of anybody vaguely connected to this wonderful sector were motivated to join up and sign this. And anecdotally, I believe this is, was one of the most well-responded consultations Treasury had ever seen in recent memory. So it really was staggering. So Jordan did make that point, but we also felt that. It addresses this problem once again of what is – I call it a problem. It's not a problem. It's a question that needs to be answered, and it's. I think it's an easy question to answer. What is an investment company? So if it's not a consumer-composite investment, what is it? And the answer to that question is it is an investment company. And part of the problem that we've always had is the fact that we, the collective we, as in the people in charge of legislation and regulations in this country, have tried to pigeonhole investment companies – either as an ordinary listed equity trading company or as a fund, when the fact is investment companies are neither, but have characteristics of both. And those characteristics vary depending on what type of investment company you are. So an investment company that only invests in equities, for example, resembles more closely a fund, an open-ended fund, but it still isn't one. It's just closer on the spectrum to an open-ended fund. Whereas an alternative asset investment company, which is where the vast growth in the sector has really come from over the past 10 years, so that over half of the AIC's members are now alternative assets companies. But they resemble operating companies and indeed, in many ways, are competing for capital from operating companies. An investment company that owns wind farms, well, they compete with the utility the external management contract is largely a cosmetic arrangement, whereas the outcome of the vehicle is is performing functions that are also performed by utility companies. So investment companies are investment companies. They are neither these operating listed trading companies like ordinary equities, nor are they funds. So let's have a legislative and a regulatory regime that reflects that. So in recognition of that, we thought that we're far more likely to satisfy the wider stakeholder community, including consumer groups, transparency lobbyists. I don't mean that in a disparaging way, that they are standing for the consumer, which is fantastic, regulators, et cetera. We need to recognize that if we exclude them from the CCI, then the risk is is that that they are just treated as trading companies again, which is basically the pre-2018 slash pre-2013 situation. So prior to 2013, they were basically treated as listed operating companies. So the risk is, as I said, is we come out of the CCI regime and there's no additional regulated cost disclosure other than what they're required to do via UK listing rules, so interim accounts, final accounts, et cetera. Now, for some, some might just take the view that, look, okay, that's enough. But we think, no, look, actually, let's elevate this sector to absolute gold standard Levels of scrutiny and transparency. And let's recognize that they're not ordinary equities, that they do have some characteristics of funds, not least that the external management contract is structured in a way that's quite similar to a fund, i.e., as a percentage, you know, an AMC, for example, is a percentage of NAV. And therefore, let us disclose what are currently called ongoing costs. Let's disclose those, but surface them and contextualize them in the right way. And so, our suggestion is is that there should be an additional requirement of investment companies, even if they're outside of the CCI regime, to disclose what we're calling a statement of operating expenses. Well, let's take that, let's call them what they are, which are operating expenses. All of this is just simply stuff that's taken out of the annual report. It's basically doing people's work for them, but it's more than that. It's, it's not just assuming that people are lazy, it's helping consumers analyze these things and recognizing that they have got characteristics of. Funds, So you can still do the comparisons, if you so wish, with other investment companies that are doing similar things. Or if you think it's appropriate, you can compare that number to a fund, an open-ended fund that may be carrying out a similar activity. That's our proposal.
0: Okay, so that's what you want. What you're actually saying is you want to exempt them from the proposed new regime, CCI regime. You want to exempt them, but you want to add something back in. So what actually has to happen for that to take place? Who has to do what for that to become a reality, assuming that they accept your proposal? Let's just start with that question. Yeah.
1: So, um, is it the
0: Treasury or is it the FCA? What's got to happen?
1: It's, it's tre- we're responding to the Treasury consultation. So they have to agree that investment companies should be on the exclusion list. So they have to agree with that premise. And it's something, by the way, that association investment companies who submitted their own response to the consultation, you know, they also are pushing for exclusion from the CCI regime. So we are waiting to hear whether HMT agrees with that. And then we have suggested this idea of a of an additional regulated cost disclosure and we'll have to see whether that is something that is going to fly because if it is going to fly then that statement of operating expenses we're suggesting it be regulated and it be something that they have to do well then it's something that, that becomes potentially under the remit of the fca so they need consultation then of course the treasury will be i'm sure exploring whether similar aims can be achieved within the cci regime now in theory in inverted commas, there is the possibility for investment companies to remain within the CCI regime, but there to be some form of FCA-led edict that says that the cost disclosures are surfaced in a different way. Now, that could be one avenue that they go down. But from my personal point of view, that would still be quite disappointing simply because that's existing in the world of second best. I mean, investment companies don't meet the definition of a CCI.
0: And there have been some positive noises from the government about this, but actually nothing action yet. It's it's going to take time for that to happen. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jonathan. And, you know, Falami
1: has been attending various events. Um, You know, Jeffrey's held a a recent event, for example, at which the issues were surfaced. Look, It's not as if people aren't aware, and, and they very much are. Let's be very clear about this. This is an extremely important sector for both this government, and one would think any future government, even if it's under a different party. This is a really significant engine of growth for vital sectors of the economy that if it isn't fixed, it won't be that engine of growth.
0: And uh, Bim Alifani is a junior minister in the Treasury. This ball is in his court. At the moment, we just have to wait. And the current regime persists more or less the same, though I think the FCA has made a concession about one thing at least. Am I right about that?
1: Oh, yes. So you're talking about the forbearance. Uh, Please, listeners, please bear with me because this is rather unbelievable. The Funds that invest in investment companies now essentially have two OCFs. So I run funds that invest in other funds, including investment companies. We have a USITS OCF. Uh, So the recent FCA forbearance allowed USITS rules to be applied to the calculation of the OCF, which means that the synthetic costs of investing investment companies can be excluded. But under MIFID, you have to include them. So there are essentially a, a USITS OCF, which excludes these costs, so it's lower, and there's one that includes them, which is the Mifid one. Now, sad, oh, sadly, not sadly, what the phrase is, it's the Mifid one that is the most widely used because the usits OCF just sits on the the fund zone KIID kid document, not to be confused with EKID with investment companies. Still, still with me, everyone so far. But look, nobody reads the KIID anyway. That number is is sort of sits there on its own. And but the Mifid OCF is distributed via the European Mifid template which is this Excel file, which is an information source for most of the platforms, for example, in this country. So when our customers, when our clients are looking up what the OCF of our fund range is, it's that MIFID one that they're looking at, and that's the one that they have to use. And of course, the UCITS forbearance only applies to UCITS funds. It doesn't apply to the entire wealth management community who are governed by MIFID rules and they still have to include.
0: I'm sure all the listeners are fully au fait with all this and the difference between PRIPS and MIFID and USITs and CCIs. And of course, that in itself is a problem, isn't it? Because it's virtually impossible for anybody who isn't actually directly involved in this to understand what the hell's going on here or indeed what number they should be looking at. And of course, one of the answers must be that we've got to get some clarification. If you believe in disclosure, it's got to be disclosure that people can actually understand and have yeah. to be practical and useful.
1: Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I'm sure there are people listening that are even more into the weeds of this stuff than I am, and I've probably said about 15 things already that are wrong. So even me, that who've been in this, involved in this for over two years now, and you know, okay, I haven't spent all my time on this. My employers wouldn't be so happy with me if that were true. But I've spent a lot of time, certainly a lot of my spare time, getting to know this. It is so confusing. Now, just imagine you are—I don't know how many um, financial advisors are listening, but. You know, lots of the listeners will be deeply involved in the investment trust world, for example, whether they manage them or on the board of one or whatever. And it, it's a lot easier for those people to understand this. But if you're an IFA, a financial advisor, can you imagine you, you've got so much on your plate at the moment with all the various things you do? When we get around to your investment proposition, do you really want to listen to me taking 45 minutes explaining the difference between a USITS OCF and a MIFID OCF? And I, I've got a huge amount of empathy with uh, financial advisors because they've got so much on their plate. And is it any surprise in the world of consumer duty that it's just natural for them to look for investment solutions that are cheaper, where they don't have to have all these difficult conversations with their clients, explaining to them for why they look so expensive? One reason being because of this issue with investment companies. So we have a serious issue. I am really not exaggerating here. And one of the reasons, I'm sorry, but I think it is one of the chief reasons at the moment, because it's not the interest rate regime anymore. We know that's been in the price for a long time. And hopefully interest rates have peaked, but it's redemptions. And redemptions are coming as a result of people selling these funds because optically they look expensive, which is making investment companies perform poorly because people are selling them, which is a vicious circle, which then makes funds that still own investment companies
0: perform poorly. And this whole thing has been basically... A bit of a mess for a long time. We've still got a regime that owes a lot to what we had when we were in the European Union, and we've got an overlay of our own activity, and it all needs to be cleared up. And it really should be cleared up soon, rather than later, as far as you and everybody else involved in the S and Trust world is concerned. But we don't yet know when that's going to be, or indeed whether it will actually happen before the election. So that's all good news, but it's not good news yet. If I can put it that way. <coughs> uh,
1: yeah, I just can't tell anybody when it's going to happen. Uh, I'm just not privy to that information, nor should I be privy to that information. But there's been tremendous success. I mean, to get over 300 signatories signed up to that joint response across the breadth of the industry, number one, that's a huge success. Number two, the fact that the FCA have already issued forbearance that allow USIT's OCFs to be lower. Well, that is an anachronism that can't be allowed to persist. You can't have two different OCFs for the same thing. So the way I view this, Jonathan, is, is that it's only a matter of time. This has to be resolved. It will be resolved. So it's just time.
0: Okay, so then let's come back to the investor trust world, which is where we all invest in, if we're sensible people. You said that you think that one of the factors that's weighed down on investment trust performance, particularly wider discounts, was interest rates. And there is a general belief that interest rates have at least peaked, that they haven't yet started to come down as significantly mm-hmm. as some people were hoping. And you said that was basically in the price now. But do you think that the potential for cost disclosure issue to be resolved is also in the price? In other words, <laughs> now all these good things you've been doing and the positive vibes that are coming out, you would expect investors to anticipate that coming into force but are you saying that that has happened or hasn't yet happened
1: no if you're a participant in this sector and you speak to brokers then i think it's, it's often much easier to buy investment companies than it is to sell them at the moment and that's yeah. because of the amount of redemptions that are happening in the world of multi-asset open-ended fund that own investment companies i think technicals are still a very very key driver of share prices and i think that that is when an investment company has a mishap when there's a bit of bad news, the share price reaction to it seems to be far more severe than ever before. And that's because of the absence of bids. So while this situation persists, there isn't this natural buyer who would normally be there to mop up these things a bit cheaply. So they sort of overshoot on the way down. Is it therefore surprising that we're seeing negative market dynamics and redemptions from funds that continue to own the investment companies because we don't have any clarity on when this is going to be resolved so we really are in an emergency situation and of course the ipo market is completely dead it's almost impossible
0: to ipo a new investment company right and that's a serious long-term threat to the sector no question about that if you don't get new companies coming along then the sector is going to shrink inevitably over time That's just a simple mathematical proposition. So there's poor liquidity. And if you try to sell something, you're going to get swamped by people who are going to rush in and try and get rid of some of their holdings. Does that mean that if we look around the universe, that it's going to take time for discounts to start to come in a bit further? We had an encouraging start in the last two months, of last year, as I said. Certainly in the alternatives, uh, infrastructure, (laughs) renewables and uh, commercial property to a lesser extent, we've seen negative discount movements in those sectors and some disappointing NAV numbers as well. So basically, we're not out of the woods yet, even if the interest rate environment has normalised. That's essentially what you're saying.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think even if suddenly there was an inverted commas victory on this cost disclosure issue with investment companies, it's not going to be an overnight thing. You know, it'll take time for OCF numbers to adjust to adjust downwards because the ACDs of funds have to effectively audit the accounts to generate a new OCF, and then that has to be then fed through the distributors. And in the meantime, if you've decided to get out of investment companies, e.g. for commercial reasons. You're not going to suddenly do a 180 and go straight back into them. But I do think at the margin, it will lessen selling pressure. It will lessen the falling demand for these shares if it were to happen. And it will set the stage for the recovery in this sector to begin. But I think there's an awful lot of time that would need to pass before we get back to the halcyon days of the issuance of a few years ago. It's just time. Because let's not forget that this has created volatility in the sector. And lots of people will be put off by that, particularly in alternatives. And that volatility isn't just a function of the interest rate environment, it's a function of the phenomenon I just talked about, that when there's a mishap, these things are falling by a far greater degree than they might ordinarily because of the technicals of the market. So the volatility characteristics of these things have changed. They're high. So people aren't going to suddenly rush in and they are now associated with being quite tricky, volatile, illiquid little things. And it's going to take some period for these things to settle down and for the the volatility characteristics start to change for people to trust the sector again.
0: Some people have been hoping or saying that, of course, well, the way to solve this is there's going to be uh, corporate activity. We're going to see either private equity come in and take some of these things which are selling on ridiculous prices, or we're going to see takeovers of one trust by another. And we have seen some evidence of that, or we've seen deals happening anyway in the commercial property sector in particular, though not uh, so many elsewhere. And of course, people are putting their hopes on that could be a way to make a a decent premium over something and come back closer to what the real NAV is in certain cases. But that may not be working very efficiently either. What are your thoughts on that whole process? The all-share merger.
1: Uh, For somebody who loves the sector, everyone's probably thinking he doesn't half-whinge about it a lot. Maybe people think that, yeah. Maybe people think that. I've got to listen to myself and think, I wish I'd stopped whinging. The all-share merger is not the answer as anything break it down to the absolute basics we have a problem of supply and demand the reason why share prices go up is that there's a surfeit of demand over supply and at the moment we have a, a surfeit of supply over demand so we either shrink supply or we increase demand for investment company shares what's happening to demand for investment company shares at the moment well i think it's falling for the reasons we've all been talking about what's happening to supply of investment company shares i don't think it's falling so what really needs to be happening is if you're going to start to see discount tightening, if demand isn't going to be increase, then you need supply to start shrinking, surely. All-share mergers don't do anything about supply. It's a real bug there. The argument runs as follows, is that you have an all-share merger that creates a bigger vehicle. So whereas before you had two less big vehicles, you have now a bigger vehicle, and then at the margin, demand should increase. But I just don't buy that. I think that is a really quite a sketchy argument because – liquidity levels aren't good enough in investment companies until you get to really, really big market cap levels for these things to start earning their place on wealth management radars. Big wealth management firms, you know, to get onto their buy list, you have to be really, really huge. So from going to a couple of hundred to 400 million, or even 300 to 600, or even getting into the 250 these days, if you look at liquidity of investment company shares, even in the FTSE 250, it's not very good. So when it comes to all share mergers, being bigger I'm sorry, it's just not good enough. We need to reduce supply of investment company shares. And you know what that means. And it means, sadly, a few need to go out of existence.
0: Right. And the question then would be, well, how do they go out of existence and at what price do they go out of existence? And that will be a function of what people think they're really worth, right? That's how the theory should go. And if you're right about the factors that contributed to the wider discounts, you'd hope that that would be significantly above the current share price, rather than just say a little bit above the current share price. Is that realistic to hope that, or are some of these uh, struggling investment trusts that are too small and relatively poor performance? Maybe they're just not worth very much.
1: Well, if they're not worth very much, there's something going on with the NAV accounting. Look, what I would really dearly like to happen is I I think that in some cases, discounts are wide enough that there is a price that existing shareholders would be very happy to sell at, so premium to the prevailing share price, but still some way below the NAV. um, That's what we've seen on the whole so far, yeah. Yeah, so there should be enough of that. So the question is, well, why aren't we seeing it? I don't have the answer to that question. I think the nature of the shareholder register is often really, really important, number one. And the nature of the management contracts, obviously, really important as well. And sometimes it's quite difficult to take over Chapter 15 investment companies because of the nature of the external management contract, you know, that's a contract that needs to be bought out, for example. And then you have other complicating factors about, you know, whether the shareholder register is motivated, you know, what are they motivated by. So yeah, and then you're into the world of what it depends on what sort of investment companies we're talking about, and I, I think that we should probably mention Saba Capital.
0: They've built up a lot of stakes in a lot of investment trusts, just to remind listeners. And uh, in some cases, they're trying to get the boards to do something. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I think they are a real force for good. The analogy I always use with apologies to Sabah, who have got nothing against, this analogy is not meant to be disparaging, but wasps. Wasps are a completely necessary part of our ecosystem. They eat and mop up things that would, wouldn't otherwise decay as quickly. I think that's a really good analogy. I think if you're going to have a, a properly functioning capitalist society, you need these sorts of actors to go and clean up things that shouldn't be allowed to continue to exist. And you know, I always think you'd be careful about moaning about these people because... The conditions that have created the favorable opportunities for people like Cyber Capital, well, you shouldn't have allowed them to occur in the first place if you don't like them. And obviously, Cyber are only doing this to portfolios where there's liquidity, where they can genuinely arbitrage the discount. You can't do that on alternative assets. and Certainly nowhere near as easily. So I don't sit here and, and look at Cyber Capital as this, some kind of you know vulture funds that are hurting the sector. I think it's quite the opposite. They're liquidity providers, and they are one of the actors that are going to help reduce
0: supply of investment company shares to rebalance supply and demand so given what you've been saying ben where does that leave you as a fund manager you and your colleagues manage funds for clients you own a lot of investment trust that's why you're so exercised about what's been going on and what needs to be done so how are you approaching this year now is it just a question of patience and sitting it out till the supply and demand comes back into balance or is there something more active you can do
1: So we're very much uh, investors who use valuations as one of the main inputs into our process. So we're always consistently looking for a margin of safety. And when you have an investment company sector trading on wide discounts relative to history, then yes, that's really interesting for us. There, There should be lots of opportunities. And indeed, there actually are lots of opportunities. But at the same time, you know, I talked about supply and demand of shares. We can't ignore some of the technical factors that are going on, and that demand for investment companies is falling. So it's all very well to identify all these wonderful opportunities. But if you know why these opportunities are one of the main reasons for the opportunities existing are the fact that there's an awful lot of selling of investment company shares from investors who are doing so because either they're doing so because they want to get the costs down of The funds that are owning these things and they're doing so because of strong commercial pressures or because they're being forced to because funds that own those investment companies are seeing redemptions for example and you can see this I think quite clearly and we have to be somewhat pragmatic so there are some really interesting opportunities abounding But we know why they're opening up is because the supply of shares that's coming onto market is going to continue. So I think I made a comment earlier that it's quite easy to buy in some areas, but rather harder to sell. And that's because there's lots of people trying to sell shares at the moment. That's the reasons I've just mentioned. So how do we respond to that environment? Well, the first thing is, is that we are going to stay true to our identity and philosophies. We want to hold cheap things and we're not going to let cost be the driver of the portfolio construction dog. So we're not reacting and saying, oh gosh, look at these horrific commercial pressures. Let's go into very liquid single stock equities or let's go into passive funds within our market. So we're sticking with investment companies. We think they're fantastic and we think they continue to offer fantastic access to great assets. But we're being pragmatic. The pragmatism expressed seems carefully making sure that we don't fire all of our ammunition off in once and go to, you know, keep increasing our weights to investment companies. And so we're not increasing our overall weight to investment companies significantly at all. Whereas ordinarily, we might be doing that because of the extent of the discounts. And that's the pragmatism they kicking in because we can see so clearly that the whole sector is out of favour. But when we do find interesting opportunities, what we're doing is just being very careful that when we buy that the stars are aligning insofar as we can estimate that the stars are aligning. So it's things like, uh, let's look at the register. You know, do we know that there's potentially someone in the register that we think might be under pressure to continue selling those shares? It would be very silly to get up to your maximum weight position in something like that where you know that there's going to be an ongoing selling pressure in those shares, potentially for some time. Second thing we do is we make jolly sure that the governance is in line. Because when you have these big discounts widening out, the response of the board is absolutely vital. You now what do the board do about this? I have a huge amount of empathy and sympathy with boards in this situation. But you have to make sure that the board's have truly got the shareholder's interest in your favour. And if there's a discount that's extremely wide, and it's been wide for a very long time, and there's no chance, for example, of the investment company ever growing, then you start to have these sorts of existential questions about whether the investment company should continue to exist. You know, if there's no return, if there's no possibility of this thing ever getting back to a premium and growing again, and in a world where it's harder and harder to get onto a wealth management company buy list, because the wealth management companies themselves are consolidating and getting it ever bigger. The issue of relevancy is huge. So you have to, when you buy something on a discount, you have to make jolly sure that you've got the board on your side who's going to do something about it. What I mean by do something about it includes the potential for winding the thing up. And so there's some interesting opportunities out there where there are boards who are sitting there thinking, gosh, maybe the listed environment isn't the correct place. For us, maybe listing as a Chapter 15 investment company wasn't the right thing to do. Maybe we need to do something else. And you can sift through the universe, you can look for strategic reviews where that's the case. And there are a number of very, very interesting opportunities therein.
0: Would you care to mention any of them?
1: Okay, I'll give you one example where I think the stars are aligning. And I very much hope in this case that this vehicle continues to exist. So we're by no means relying on it going out of existence. But if I take, for example, the shipping sector, so these are investment companies that own ships and these investment companies derive their income, it's a bit like owning physical property. You, know, you own the thing and then you lease it out and that's how you make money. Shipping is a wonderful as an investor because the supply-demand dynamics of ships are so in your favour. You know, new ships aren't being built, so the supply of ships is constrained it's also further in in terms of the good quality ships, the supply of those good quality ships are constrained. And by what I mean there is is low carbon emitting ships, which is what everybody wants to use. And secondly, speed on the oceans is falling. So ships are being required to travel slower across the oceans, which constrains supply again. And then a temporary factor, of course, you've got the rather sad events that are going on in various parts of the world that are constraining where ships can actually travel. So they're having to avoid certain areas for piracy and obviously for terror reasons. And so that's a temporary factor affecting the, the environment. Whereas demand is remarkably constant for shipping. 85% of global trade goes by shipped. So it's always going to be around it. Demand for use of shipping effectively tracks population growth. So you've got some listed investment companies there. Tufton is a great example, Tufton Oceanic Assets. And if you go and check your RNSs, have a little look at how the board are reacting to the existence of their discount. It's very interesting. So this is an example where we think the net asset value is correct. We think that the underpinning of the net asset value is there from the fundamentals. So we think the direction of the net asset value is up, not down. And finally, we think we have a board there. And it's a very good manager, I should say. It's a very good manager. I've got great deed of sympathy. and it's, it's frankly, I think ludicrous that the discount is this big. But we've got a board there who are saying, look... We need to assess whether this listed environment is the right place for us, given the existence of this discount. The listed market is not correctly recognising the value of our assets, so the strategic review and play. I think that's a classic example of the sort of situation that we like. And one other thing I think is interesting in terms of the bigger liquid things, bigger liquid, uh, renewable energy and infrastructure investment companies are interesting because I think their share prices have been particularly under pressure from technical related selling from people who are being forced to sell these perhaps because of redemption pressures or because they need to get their ACFs down. I think discounts are opening up in that area for uh, very, very well managed companies holding extremely good assets with extremely stable income streams, with a good deal of inflation linkage. The yields on your share price compare very favourably to, to that which is available, for example, in the fixed income universe again. It wasn't the case perhaps 12 months ago, but now it, it certainly is the case again. So that's an area where we're getting increasingly interested in as well.
0: And final question then, You know, are you having issues with your clients who say, you put me into all these investment trusts and a lot of them have performed relatively poorly and what are these discounts all about? I mean, are you getting feedback? You've got to do quite an education job perhaps.
1: Yes, we do. It's education on that. It's education on the um, OCF situation. The fact that we've now got two OCFs, the UCITS OFS and the the Mifid OCF, it's ludicrous. Let's not go there. That's ludicrous. But yes, we do. We're fortunate enough to have really supportive patient clients who know how we invest. You know, when anybody engages with us, they know what they're going to get. And they know that they're going to get a manager who really likes accessing these assets via investment companies. But it is trying their patience because what we say is, is that we hold some extremely cheap assets, lots of them in the investment company space. I think historically, that value would have outed a hell of a lot more quickly than it is at the moment. So patience is being tried because of all the issues that I've just spoken about. So we're having to beg patience to a far greater degree than we used to. And it's exacerbated by what's going on, of course, with some of our peers who have fully embraced lower cost investing, which involves having significant weights in, for example, large cap U.S., and we speak on the day. I put a LinkedIn post. I have to say to this, Jonathan, I think you should enjoy this stat. But the one-day market cap gain in NVIDIA yesterday, the one-day market cap gain was greater than the market capitalization of the investment company sector.
0: I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Extraordinary. So a lot of our peers have embraced that area and congratulations to them. It's been fantastic. But all I'm saying is, is that, you know, our peers who have shunned perhaps investment companies and have gone down a route, a portfolio construction route results in a lower cost at the moment because the dynamics at play is resulting in very good performance. So it's a difficult environment for us. Fortunately, our longer term numbers are very good. So people are giving us some understanding. But Jonathan, I have to say to you, it's difficult having conversations with clients and I fully understand why they might be concerned, but we're just doing our best to to navigate the situation.
0: So that was Ben Conway, the Head of Fund Management and Chief Investment Officer at Hawksmoor Investment Management. This week also, I was able to talk to uh, Sachin Sarga, who is an analyst at the broker's Stiefel and in particular covers a lot of the alternative asset investment trusts, which has been quite an interesting place to be looking at over the last couple of years. Sachin, welcome to the podcast. Give us, first of all, just a sort of broad picture of what's been happening in the alternatives as you see it. We had the rally at the end of last year, and since then, we've seen some of the sectors sell off again, interest rate expectations being part of that. What's your take on that overall? I mean,
2: there's a couple of angles, I guess, to this. One is, unfortunately, interest rates are driving the macro and, and a lot of the share prices in the short to medium term. And so I guess a lot of the rally last year was due to expectations of cuts coming through probably faster than people expected and some of the backup this year could be put to the fact that people's expectations have been moderated a little bit and pushed out further than people were initially expecting and i guess that story probably continues to play out until you actually start to see some cuts actually coming through it's not ideal to kind of have the macro driving the underlying fundamentals of a lot of stocks but i think that's kind of where you are and with a lot of alternatives If a lot of these things are income orientated, you're comparing current interest rates to the income yield that you might be getting for these things. And when interest rates are low, then that premium of investing in an alt is very high and pushes a lot of demand into them. And when that kind of collapses, people will, you know, rightly or wrongly will say as well, if I can earn 6% in my savings account, then do I need a stock that's yielding seven or eight? And that story's kind of been playing out for a while now. But um, it looks like at least at some point this year, that might start to actually revert.
0: If that is what happens, and we do see interest and expectations uh, move in a more favorable direction, do you think that's actually going to lead to a significant amount of new demand coming in? There's no demand for the shares at all, pretty much. No. At the moment. Is that going to be enough to get us back to where we were before, or are we basically, uh, I mean, we can't I, get back I, to par? No, uh,
2: it'll be difficult for anyone to sit here and say that the clock will turn back and we'll end up where we were uh, two years ago. But I think it will help move things in the right direction. Unfortunately, you probably hit on a sour point for the UK right now, where it just looks like whether it's trust or generic equities, there's just a lack of demand. And the common thing when you speak to more institutional investors is that liquidity is becoming a bigger and bigger part of their thought process. And unfortunately, that means that a lot of things in the UK just don't end up meeting the threshold for investment. And if anything, I kind of feel a lot of people in the UK, because of this focus on size and liquidity, end up investing in the US. So it feels like we're shooting ourselves on the foot, to be honest, at the moment, because you need some domestic demand to kind of keep things sensible. And things have got probably far too cheap right now.
0: We've already seen a process start by which investment trusts that are too small or out of favour, are beginning to take remedial action, either the market's doing it for them or the boards are beginning to put them out of business, if you like, if they can't find another yep. home. So is that how you're spending most of your time at the moment? You're looking for the cases where the next one to go maybe, and whether there's any upside in any kind of rationalisation process from here? And
2: I guess that's one of the positives in investment trusts versus, say, a generic equity, right? investment trusts generally have mechanisms in which if things are languishing materially below where they think the valuation or the nav is then they'll be knocked on the head at some point and that might take maybe slightly longer than people would want or expect but it will happen at some point whereas a cheap operating company might remain cheap for a very long time unless it's taken out which you kind of started to see a lot of on the other side so yes i would look at this and go if i was let's call it a retail investor The sweet spot, I would say, is market caps are below 300 million because they're being overlooked and they're probably more undervalued. There's probably a disconnect in valuation between things that are bigger versus things that are smaller because people are focusing so much on liquidity. And so there are things that are relatively interesting from a valuation perspective, but they're things that are on the smaller side. So yes, I think there's more value to be squeezed out of smaller things than there are out of bigger things
0: in general. One of the issues that I guess you face and investors face is, let's take an example of Digital 9, shall we, which has been quite dramatic for from grace. It wasn't that long ago that it was actually trading around par. Now it's gone down into the weeds, so to speak. The hardest thing is it looks like it's got no future, obviously. But the question is, how do you work out when you might get your money back? And if so, how much will you get? I mean, it's quite straightforward at this point,
2: to be honest. You look at D9 and probably most people have been caught offside on that at some point, wherever you were along around its journey from sort of a pound down to 20p where it is now. And it's got a collection of assets generally that you think it should not have ended up in this place. And it is a collection of poor decisions by the board and frankly, a poor manager that have led it to kind of get to where it is and it should not be at this place. But now you're here. How do you look at it? They've got only a small number of assets. The first catalyst will be, does the Vern transaction close? If it closes, then that kind of gives you a basis to see the other side. But then the next question really is, if you're investing in it today is, like you said, when will I get my cash? Because this is now in wind down and I'm waiting for liquidity events to do that. And realistically, I think I was looking at the board for some sort of guidance as to what happens with the VLN note on Arkiva. So this is sort of a vendor lending note that's attached to Archiva. Assuming that VERN happens, which I think while it's binary, I think that'll get done. The question is, at what point can an investor first expect their distribution to occur? And that then hinges on this VLN that's attached to Archiva. If the RCF ultimately is paid off, then I want to know that at that point, I will start as an investor start getting distributions or capital back. The board have kind of sat on the fence at the moment and said that we will make a decision about whether to pay off the VLN or to distribute shareholders at a future date in time. And that kind of creates more uncertainty. So the VLN is about 170 to 190 million sterling. If that is being paid off first, that pushes back my ability to get capital back from this further down the line. So without paying the VLN first, it will be 12 to 18 months where I can expect a first distribution. With the VLN, I'm looking at two years. And so you're looking at this as an IRR trade right now. You'd be like, there are a lot of things that are cheap in the investment trust sector the fact is I'll be waiting two years to get something back on this. And is there other things I can do in the interim? Because frankly, there's no demand for the stock and no one wants to own it. So it's become quite speculative at this point. So I don't see institutions necessarily lining up to buy this anymore. And so the only thing that matters is cash.
0: How do you explain to shareholders that this thing is now trading on a very big discount? The NAV is just wrong right at the moment.
2: NAVs are an interesting concept, right? You know, What is an NAV? It is in an indication of value between a willing buyer and a willing seller in a normal functioning market, frankly, you could look at the share price of GGI 9 and say, as a buyer, I would be using that as a leverage tool to extract value. I If my nav is a pound and my share price is 20p, I don't actually care what my nav is because I'm not going to give you nav because I can see that you're at 20p. So does my nav really matter at that point? I'd argue is that let's make a hypothetical situation where I wanted to why DGI 9 and I see the share price at 20? I mean, I'll offer you 30 if I think there's value in this. Why would I offer you anything close to NAV just so you can go to your shareholders? I'm extracting value from my shareholders. And so I think at this moment, you look at DGI 9 and I kind of look at it as, in some ways, you should look at it as a lottery ticket. So it's at 20p. Probably if Vern gets done, you could see a past 50, 60p but I want three times my money given all the road bumps or things that could have been avoided by board and manager that have happened so far. I'll be looking at this saying, I want three times my capital to make this worthwhile to sit on it for three years. And that's how I kind of think of it. And you lose one as a risk. There's a binary risk around this, but three to one start to look
0: interesting at this right. risk. My general point was though, when you're looking at alternatives, obviously a lot of them are marked a model or, or they're based on some kind of calculation, which if one's interested in getting retail investors into these kind of stocks and somebody's valued at this thing and the board says that's a, still the NAV, that's not particularly healthy, is it, in this kind of environment? No,
2: I mean, a lot of this is confidence related, right? So you want some sort of form of organic recycling of assets to kind of show people that the concepts of NAVs have grown over the past five years as you've seen more and more alternatives come to the market. And what you want to see is some validity or validation of that NAV over time to kind of say is actually all these assumptions and tools or curves, et cetera, that you're showing me can be actually brought to a single transaction or, or a series of transactions, which gives me confidence that this modeled process is somewhat attached to reality. And what you see is that At times, the model process gets disconnected from reality in a material way. So maybe at some point, we'll end up talking about song because it's in the news every day. But that is a poster child. It was very clear that the model process had disconnected from reality. It was visible and seeable. And when you start to lose confidence in that, then the share price will start to react. But you're starting to see is a lot of these alternatives are now doing organic recycling. So you're seeing some validation come through. And I think you'll see more and more of that. And obviously there's been some potholes along the way with certain trusts, but I think broadly you'll kind of get a
0: reasonable sense that things are in the right ballpark. Before we come on to Song and others like that, do you think that there's an opportunity in Cordiant? Has it been kind of contaminated by what's been going on at DJI 9? That's obviously not on such a big discount, but it's still on a significant discount, 40%. It definitely
2: right. has been contaminated, and there is nothing wrong with what they're doing. They've got a good team. They've got the right resource. They're the right home for this, i.e. they are a, a house that has got... A digital infrastructure footprint through it with the right number of people doing the right number of things the thought process behind it so yes they're contaminated yes they're cheap i guess the thing is that there are a lot of things that are cheap and you look at the portfolio and i've got nothing against them i think that the assets are relatively decent in there but i look at it and go as do i want eastern european exposure right now versus some other stocks that probably have more western exposure it wouldn't be my place to go necessarily although it's cheap and i can see it re-rating it over time
0: I wouldn't necessarily say it's something that sticks out. Another sector that's interesting and we don't sort of talk about very much, but is certainly topical in the way at the moment, when that is the shipping sector, the recently revived yes. shipping sector. It disappeared for many years and now has come back again. What are your thoughts about that? Because obviously there's a lot going on around the world, which you'd think would have an impact on the two main companies in that sector, Tufton Oceanic mm-hmm. and uh, Taylor Maritime. What are your thoughts about that sector? I'm t- quite a big fan of it. Let's be clear. I think there's a lot of scepticism around – discounted cash
2: flow valuations with long-term models, the shipping sector is valued on a broker marked basis. And the broker marks have been closer to realized transactions than maybe what people have felt in a sort of a discounted cash flow model. And both funds and both companies have been regularly testing those valuations by a high number of sales. So both Taylor Maritime and Tufton have been selling ships, let's say within plus or minus 5% of the NAV. So frankly, if you look at the shipping market, it's actually more liquid than you would expect. If they wanted to sell a ship, they could probably sell a ship relatively quickly, or they could sell the portfolio relatively quickly if they wanted to. And so that creates a confidence in the nav and B that some of these things are really cheap right now, given the discounts that they're trading at. So the question is, how do these things re-rate or what is the next step? And you'd kind of look at it saying, unfortunately, probably bring more focus to those stocks. They would need. Day rates or spot rates to kind of go higher and more to the upside to highlight the fact that they're cheap right now than anything else. Or if you look at Taylor Maritime, maybe saying, is the manager and related employees now a reasonable amount of stock that they've been buying stock quite regularly? They're sitting on a big paper profit from their perspective. And do they want to do this for the long term or do they want to wind up the trust? And I think a lot of people will be looking at this saying, why am I got a listed trust if I'm not getting anywhere close to the value that's within this? And so, do I want to do this or do I just wind up the whole thing at some point? And I guess that creates your optionality in terms of return.
0: Right. But in terms of what's going on in the wider world, the geopolitics, the Houthi rebels and so on, that's kind of just a tactical thing. It doesn't really affect the- No,
2: it does. I mean, spot rates kind of bounced at the back end of last year. They've come up a little bit this year. But if you look at it, it's a double-edged sword in some ways. The geopolitical tension kind of causes spot rates to go up. But if you start to see that tension subside, then spot rates will come back down. If that tension remains elevated for a period of time or deteriorates, then that'll provide more positive momentum potentially to those stocks. So you end up then going into sort of a binary phase. In some ways, you could kind of say is the tension is creating in an artificial increase in spot rates, and those need to be elevated for a period of time to maintain those spot rates, because if they come back down, that'll have an impact on the share price again and sentiment.
0: Yes, I mean, I always thought one of the issues of the shipping, thing. if you're looking at sort a of real medium longer term, is that there is a market out there, supply and demand for these things. There's an investment cycle as well, get overbuild and underbuild and so on. And so therefore, over time, you're going to get volatility, right? That's Correct. virtually inevitable, yeah. So yes. that's something you have to factor into uh, into into thinking about these things. Well, you mentioned our old friend uh, Tip Knows His Song. The latest sort of news coming out is all about this question of whether or not the trust can get an indemnity against the legal action against the management company. But are you one of those who think that basically this act has got to play out, the board has six months to come up with solutions? Where do you think the most likely path from here is, given all the back history we've had? In terms of the legal side of
2: things, I sit on the side of a lot of this is noise. Clearly, there's been a complete deterioration between board and manager, and there needs to be some sensible parting of ways. And maybe the, and I would call it the, these RNSs that are being released are basically effectively going to be used as tools to try and find a way to negotiate a sensible out for everybody. Speaking to investors, you know the relationship is corrosive and toxic, and frankly, those that are holding it are in it because they believe there is more value in the assets than the share price. And I think a lot of people will probably see that there this should be. But frankly, you're not going to create any new demand until you get to stage two, and stage two is going to be how you extract yourself. So obviously, everyone's talked about this call option. Frankly, I think there will be a way to navigate around that. And the second point is I'm not entirely sure Blackstone wants to buy the catalogue anyway and put further money into this. And so I think that will kind of drop away. And then you're into stage two, which is can you get someone else sensibly to manage this, turn things around, scrub it, clean it, get some confidence back? Because it feels like music is an asset class that people do want to like.
0: You made an interesting comment about Blackstone, actually. You made the point, I think, in a note you did recently just saying that this is actually a very small beer for them. They must be getting pretty really tired. Um, frankly, I think they're indifferent to the outcome. A lot of the
2: noise that you've seen around all the press, I think, is coming not from Blackstone. I kind of split it into two camps. The, let's make it easy. The legacy hypnosis team and the Blackstone team. If I'm Blackstone, I've got a $30 billion portfolio of which this is probably one of my smallest investments within that vehicle. I'm sure the way this has turned out is not exactly how they underwrote their initial investment. And if I'm them, my main issue at Blackstone is, can I deploy capital because I'm a large vehicle? I don't want to have 50 million, 100 million investments. I want something going to be one, two, three, four billion. because that's meaningful for me. 50 million is noise. If you look at it, do I see a sensible pathway where a Blackstone hypnosis manager can continue to buy assets in the music asset class from an artist? If I'm an artist sitting here today and all I've seen for the last nine months is negative press, seeing how badly managed the board and the manager we've been today, I would say that this is not the right home. And so my perspective is I don't think they have a business model going forward because I don't think anyone will want to sell to them.
0: Okay, so that's pretty clear-cut. Let's just talk briefly about the renewable sector. I find it interesting to contrast what happens in the renewable sector with what's been happening in the commercial property sector where we've seen a lot of deals going on. Another one this week, we saw some competition coming in for Aberdeen property income. But looking at the renewables, one of the things that you've pointed out and I think is interesting or picked up on is the fact that uh, there hasn't been much corporate activity so far. And when it has happened, the most recent one involving um, Octopus Renewable and Aquila, the market doesn't seem to like that one very much either. How do you interpret that situation? Are the shareholders holding out for something better or the market just doesn't think that no, think the deal
2: so. makes sense? You know what you're seeing across maybe even property and on the listed alternative fund side is actually putting two trusts together even if they're in related sectors is actually quite tough the only place where i've seen corporate activity being successful is really on the vanilla equity funds where portfolios can be adjusted turned over and amalgamated from one to the other fairly easily i feel like there are lots of nuances between trusts and investors and assets even within a subsector basis, within renewables, that makes these things tough. I mean, you should see more corporate activity, whether it merges with one trust, another trust is the right thing, or whether someone may swoop in to poach one of these trusts is another. But I kind of feel like maybe the time to poach a trust or to acquire a trust was probably last year. If no one bought it when things were really struggling, then you're at, probably at the point where you've missed the boat. And I see probably lower scope for that going forward.
0: Just to take this octopus renewables issue. I mean, their share price has been sinking, basically. The discount's been widening. Is that a, just a reflection, as I said, on the, on the deal itself, or is it on the fact that actually putting these two together doesn't really make any sense? Um, I'm not sure
2: people are looking at what's happened in the short term, thinking that's a product of the potential for a combination of the two. I think in the last couple of months, what you've seen is that power prices have continued to fall, and that is weighing down on a lot of share prices and impacting these funds. So I'm, I'm not sure people are saying, I don't like the merger. I'm, I think they're saying is ultimately you need robust power prices and PPA prices for these things to do well. And the backdrop is marginally, you'd say is deteriorated over the last two months than it was at the back end of last year. And that's way done and sentiment. And you can now probably add in some discount rate reversion as well into that full process.
0: So that's not going to change anytime soon, then, unless there's a significant change in power prices, for whatever reason, or power price expectations. Particularly, I mean, interesting what's been happening in the battery storage sector. I mean, that's been pretty brutal. Obviously, some of them have perked up a little bit since the worst of that sell-off. But do you think that there's opportunity there? I think, A, there's a lot of complexity in batteries. And B,
2: you've got to ask yourself the first question is, do you think we need batteries? Is the business model been tested? Is the revenue model been tested? And does it work? And if you're comfortable with that, then you could see opportunity. If you're not comfortable with that, then obviously I think you take a different approach. So my perspective is that it is difficult to see a world when you have such high renewable penetration that you don't need batteries. And then the question is, how much batteries do you need? And when do you think this thesis might play out? Broadly, a battery makes the bulk of its returns from wholesale trading, let's just say. So. Very simply, charges up at night when prices are low and discharges when prices are high, when everyone's making dinner between 4 and 7 p.m. And it does that cycle twice a day is how people think about it. And, and if you look at different regions and different parts of the world, that model is starting to bear out. It's just not in the UK. And so you're talking about time. I, my perspective is the thesis has been delayed, not permanently impacted. But I think there is debate around the whole story around it and when this might play out. But at the moment, if you look at the trust world and the investors in these sectors, a lot of people bought this for income. And frankly, if you look back now, in hindsight, you'd say is that the mandates of these funds were geared to income levels that were far too high versus the underlying revenue stream, i.e. the revenue stream is very volatile and it can go through long, dull periods. And it requires, let's just take Texas for an example, because it's kind of a poster child for what's happening. In August, the batteries in Texas made nearly all revenue in that one month than they did the previous seven months. That is not necessarily a profile that is sustainable for a consistent dividend stream if, if you're paying a high dividend. My perspective at the moment is it needs to be adjusted, as in your <laughs> dividend payout needs to be matched to your underlying revenues on a weekly to monthly basis. I'm not too fast whether you're covered every quarter or not, but it needs to be sensible. And at the moment, I think what's happened is a lot of these investors have come to the realization, this is where they are. And people are holding this for income and they're not getting income. So things become too cheap because they're forced to exit because dividends are being suspended
0: or cut, etc. Indeed, they have been suspended in a couple of cases out of the three trusts. What's interesting about the batteries, there was this significant kind of rally at the end of last year, all based on hopes, among other things, that the connections to the national grid will become better and easier and so on. And that hasn't happened the way that people were hoping. Can you just briefly explain what the issue is and why it hasn't happened? So, you know,
2: everyone knows about net zero transition. And that obviously means a lot of things has to happen at the national grid level in terms of the infrastructure around us. And so let's just say in the last five years, you've seen a lot of batteries being built or grid scale batteries. And that's meant that the historical way that, say, national grid or the ESO operates needs to be adjusted and changed. And I guess a lot of these things are built for periods in time which have not been – they haven't adjusted to the technological advances of today, i.e. you can see you need a battery, but you actually need national grid to operate them in a sensible way to extract the value that you think is in them. And so there was a series of adjustments last year to the system in terms of how batteries participate in the network. And you can broadly just go through and say, is every one of those ended up being revenue negative. And the ones that were meant to be revenue positive were delayed or did not happen or did not have the same impact that you thought they were going to have. It's interesting, though, it's clear that National Grid, it's an uneasy relationship in some ways, right? National Grid needs batteries. If they believe that, then they need to have a revenue model for batteries that makes sense, i.e., there's no point putting in place systems that cause revenues for batteries to fall to an extent that no one will build a battery. And at the moment, if you took the run rate revenues of the last few months and extrapolated it out, you'd actually say is no one should be building a battery anymore. I don't think that's where National Grid wants this to go because they feel like they need batteries. So there'll be adjustments. And you can see some of that tension playing out because I think this month alone, Probably driven by some of the volatility in the share prices of the three listed funds, National Grid seemed to have come out impromptu and amended some of the rules around the balancing mechanism, which is one of the key things a lot of the battery funds are looking at. So, batteries instead of being operated on a 15 minute basis, they're going to change that to 30 minutes. I don't think that was something that was in the works or in this sort of long term plan of National Grid. So, I think that's a reaction to maybe we went too far with some of the things that we've done and. This is a way to kind of bridge the gap for a period of time while we put in systems and et cetera in place to kind of smooth that process of change. So I kind of feel like there should be value in this. Will it be smooth? No, it will be lumpy. But those batteries that are still standing in 12, 18, 24 months will probably end up doing very well. But given where the share prices are, there's a question whether all of these funds can withstand that sort of discount and volatility.
0: So finally, then, Sachin, so say your job mainly is to look after alternative investment trusts or to research them, rather. And it's been a tough period, as we said, for all these factors coming together, the interest rates and all these specific issues. Do you think, looking back, that this alternative asset revolution in the investment trust world was built on flimsy foundations in many cases, and in other words, the more recent uh, arrivals on the market perhaps have not lived up to expectations in the way that some of the original ones <coughs> have done? I guess you can say, look, it's a nascent
2: and newer sector that's grown very rapidly over the last five years in a period where interest rates were low and people were flushed with capital to invest in these things. Uh, I think like most things, it needs to go through a period of consolidation and rethinking. And if you look at the last year in terms of what's happened, you'd kind of look at it and go, if you're going to have alternatives in the listed fund world, and I think you should do, and I think it's a good asset class in general, you need boards that have the required expertise be able to understand the asset class they're investing in so when you go into complex things like maybe music you need a board that understands that when you're going into digital infrastructure you need someone who understands digital infrastructure as well as how the listed trust world works and those sorts of things i think unfortunately you will have things where you hit road bumps along the way but the model will be calibrated going forward to understand what you need to do to make it better it's like someone make the first iphone it's the first model now you're at the 15th model you can see the improvements and and maybe the listed in alt world is similar and you had the first round of how these things have been built and you might need version 2.0 or 3.0 to kind of improve on that and you'd hope that people will support it because i think it's actually quite an interesting asset class that gives exposure to people that they would find hard to get in any other um, mechanism
0: but obviously, now alternative assets to their peak reached about half the value of the investor trust sector. I mean, that's going to shrink, isn't it? There's not going to be many new arrivals in the immediate short term. but what you're suggesting is that the normal kind of Darwinian process will happen and the week will get weeded out, and hopefully that in due course there'll be a smaller but stronger sector. Exactly, put it this
2: way is you look at the list adults and Mark you'd say is anything that was going to trip over is probably tripped over at this point, and the ones that are left are probably the stronger ones that'll end up doing okay because they stood the test of time and that's kind of how you think about it and at some point i think memories can be quite short if you start to get to a environment that is more conducive for people investing then i think people will look at this stuff again and there have been some good stories in this as well
0: That was Sachin Saga, who is an investment trust analyst at The Broker Stiefel. Thank you for
1: listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.